This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, seasonal workers from Vanuatu launch fundraising campaigns to help families back home devastated in the recent cyclones. The crops that we planted is the food like we rely on, and uh, at the moment everything was destroyed. And a massive sea cucumber bust in Australian waters shines a light on illegal fishing in the region. The main deterrent I must stress is the seizure and destruction of their vessel. And we delve into the scientific division surrounding Japan's plans to release nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Is it safe or is it dangerous? We speak to two scientists on either side of the debate to find out what they think. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have you in my company. First, though, it's been about two weeks since twin Category 4 cyclones slammed into Vanuatu, and Australian boots are on the ground helping respond to the disaster. Relief supplies are being distributed as communities on Vanuatu's outer islands are warning of an impending food shortage. As Caroline Tiraman reports, attention is also focusing on the resilience of Vanuatu's businesses. As authorities pick up the pieces, all eyes are on Vanuatu's economy and how it will recover from the impacts of Cyclone Judy and Kevin. Glenn Craig is chairperson of the Vanuatu Business Resilience Council. He says while the winds didn't reach Category 5 levels like those in the past, they felt the impact. These two didn't damage as much infrastructure is before, what they have done is they've wiped out basically all food crops. So we're going to be suffering with a significant food shortage in the next for the next four months. Mr Craig says the situation has not been helped by poor coordination on the ground. We've had a problem with our national airline for a while, recovering from COVID. So the national airline's been in financial difficulty, which means that we're already only, one, we've got one Boeing flight in and out. Unfortunately, Virgin Airways, they were due to start flying on Friday and they pulled out. A lack of consultation, it would be fair to say, because all the resorts are open, they're ready to go. And the feedback we've got from the guests travelling is they were ready to come. The restaurants and the bars and cafes, resorts are still open, but Virgin have delayed their launch now by one month. And that's caused a massive impact because those bookings are so needed. Kava farmers are also feeling the effect of the twin cyclones with crop damage forcing farmers to harvest their crops now. Julia King is an MP and Kava export business owner in Port Vila. For us in the export market, this will only speed up the, the amount of supply that we will be receiving in the next few days because a lot of um, plants would have been damaged and um, we are anticipating an overflooding of fresh cover in the market. But with the ongoing disasters post the twin cyclones, we are hoping that a lot of our farmers will hope to dry their cover. In comparison to the pandemic, the cover supply chains were kept open during the time uh, when the, the pandemic crisis was here. So we were able to get a lot of supply. And in the same sense, 
with the uh, large amount of damaged routes in the latest disasters, we are anticipating um, increase of supply coming in from the outer islands. And up until yesterday morning, all the local vessels have started moving again. So it will mean an influx of supply on Efate, and it's, it's actually very good for us. Communities on the southern island of Tana have also raised their concerns about damage to food gardens. Chief Jean-Pascal Wahe says disaster officials have told them to conserve their water supply and not to sell their crops. People from the village will not sell. They produce to the market because we more concentrate on the replanting and also we have to take time to look after the, the community, the, the family and also the water source and all uh, uh, affected crops or remain crops. You need to store in your kitchen, not to sell because we, we don't know what time the government can assist with the, with the supplies. Meanwhile, the chairman of the Vanuatu Business Resilience Council, Glenn Craig, is calling on the government to assist with a cash transfer for those people who were most affected on Tana. What we are speaking with mobilizers is uh, what was successful over the last couple of years when disaster struck has, has been able to do what we call humanitarian cash transfer which means that you're putting money directly into the hands of the beneficiaries that have been the worst affected. So by doing so, what you're doing is you're allowing people to buy what they need. Mr Craig says cash would be a better option than food donations. Every household is different. Um, so it means that $100 a fortnight or $200 a month, you can put money directly into the hands of those so they can buy what they need, whether or not it's clothing or school supplies or food needs because every family is different. So we're pushing for that, and the donor partners, Australia and New Zealand, have been very generous in funding this in previous cycles, and we think that that's going to be the way forward. That was Glenn Craig, chair of Vanuatu's Business Resilience Council, and the reporter there was Caroline Turman. And as income for many new Vanuatu families dries up in the wake of the twin cyclones, a group of seasonal workers in South Australia are raising money to support family in the southern island of Tanna. The island has reported widespread damage to crops and food gardens. Roger Jack Nibiko is a fruit picker in Renmark and says getting cash to family members is priority for him and his fellow workers. After the cyclone hit uh, Vanuatu and we didn't hear them about one week, so after a week we hear them and they said uh, they are fine, they are okay. But only the properties like house and other things like crops, our crops that we plant them, all, they have been uh, destroyed. And their family are okay, but only the, some of the buildings, our houses, yeah, have been destroyed. Most in uh, other villages, the houses have been destroyed. Places like Tano, people rely on their gardens to for food. Yeah, tell me how much of an impact this will have on in Vanuatu not not having garden. Most of the event in Vanuatu Island, Tana, most of them the the garden have been destroyed around the islands. The main the, the crops that we planted is the uh, food like we rely on, and uh, at the moment everything was destroyed. So the, we only survive through crops the crops that we planted in the garden. How's it been for you personally and, and, and your 
uh, your group from Vanuatu being so far away from home? Yeah, it's been hard for us. Like, it's a big challenge for us. And uh, for for us, like, we must have to help our family back home to provide for them, like, foods and other things so they can get something like rice or something like this to uh, survive or get, to eat it while waiting for the other crops that they just have started to plant it. And so I understand that you've been on the reasons where we've been in touch because there's been a big fundraising effort from yeah. uh, the community and, and the people that you work for. Yeah. It's an history ever. Something happened like that in, uh, in my family or in our islands. Never something happened like that in Australia or New Zealand. I've never, heard, I've never heard about it. So it's fantastic. Like it's a very surprise for us and my my people or my family back home and our relatives, every people around down in my island. They heard that they were surprised because never something happened like that. So we were like we very appreciate everything and the community, what the people or some other people see that they contribute donate the money. So we are very exciting and we like we appreciate every help from the community. That was Roger Jack Nimbiko, Vanuatu's seasonal worker at Renmark. That's in South Australia. He was speaking there via a satellite phone, phone I believe, to reporter Nick Sass. And more than $14,000 already has been pledged to that uh, campaign, that fundraising campaign uh, started by Roger. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inside Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inside Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. It's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined, as always, by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning to you, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. How are you today? I'm good. I'm doing well. I'm very interested in the first story that you have for us. Um, Fiji Airways staff have claimed bodyguards of a former politician were allowed to carry guns on a domestic flight. Well, the question is, who's this politician? That's right. So this was on the front page of the Fiji Times today, uh, and they've reported the bodyguards of former Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum uh, were allegedly allowed to carry guns uh, onto domestic flights. Uh, And this is also without approval from the civil Aviation Authority uh, of Fiji. So this is all according to some current uh, and former airline ground staff who spoke to the newspaper and they actually said they were ordered by senior management to allow the guns uh, to be carried into the cockpit uh, even though those approvals had not been attained. Very interesting. I actually never knew that guns weren't allowed on on planes. I just assumed that (laughs) all these high-flying politicians, uh, perhaps such as the former Attorney General, but even others, um, just take sort of weaponry with them to to keep things safe. I only ever thought it was designated airline, like uh, airline officers that were allowed to carry them. That was in American movies, so who knows Yes, exactly. I was going to (laughs) say, I'm probably judging all this from American movies. But, I mean, if if they didn't have the right... um, right uh, certification 
question, as is being alleged. Um, I guess that is a concern. Has, has Air, Fiji Airways themselves report, responded to these allegations? They did. They did send a statement through. Uh, the, the CEO of the airline, um, it, was, it was quite vague, but basically said they followed strictly and in every um, instance uh, its processes and procedures for carrying dangerous goods, um, uh, and there are regularly uh, approved processes that are in place. Uh, however, the CAAF uh, said no approvals for firearms uh, had been issued. Uh, meanwhile, Mr. Syed Kaim himself uh, has not responded. Oh, very interesting. Yes, I guess there is always, particularly since um, you know the early early two thousands, there's been a lot of a lot more scrutiny on what you can and can't bring bring into airplanes, and that that it affects all of us, all passengers. Not not even mm-hmm. uh, if you're if you're a politician or a former politician, you can't get away from all those extra checks. Um, so yeah, interesting to see whether or not that that those checks did happen on that particular flight. Um, now let's uh, head to Samoa where there's reports a Fijian man escaped from an employer after he was locked up at work. Wow, why was they locked up at work? What is this? Yeah, a bit of an interesting one. So uh, it's a Fijian man this is about, and uh, and he claims that he had to jump a fence uh, to escape after he was locked inside a compound uh, for more than a month in uh, in Apia. So up here, sorry. Um, so this is reported by the Samoan Observer, and uh, and they say the man arrived in Samoa in December to work as a barista and hairdresser, uh, but things took a turn for the worst after about a week uh, after he was made to do housework, uh, and then eventually his passport was seized. Oh dear, that's um, quite unfortunate. Um, uh, so do we know much, many details about his his escape? Well, I mean, it, I guess it wasn't sort of a, a great escape situation mm-hmm. that you might see in a movie or something, but uh, he did have to climb a fence and uh, and luckily he found refuge uh, with the Fijian family. So uh, he since claimed a report um, uh, to Samoan immigration as well as the police. Uh, they were able to go in and retrieve his belongings. Uh, he's since returned to Fiji, but he's claiming now that, uh, that nothing has been done uh, to the employer. The newspaper has sent questions to the employer in, qu- in question, uh, but they have received no reply. So, uh, yeah, a bit of bit of a concerning and interesting case. Yes, yes, it's always important to um, get. Well, I guess there's no solutions yet. It's, it's very um, good to hear that the Fiji man has been able to reach his family again. Um, I was going to say, checking up jobs overseas, you always hear these sort mm. of horror stories, and it's always important to check and verify who you're going to stay with. And yeah, but sometimes it can be just impossible. So yeah, very, very good to hear. Good news for this particular man, but hopefully there aren't any others stuck in similar situations. Um, and now to some um, happy stories. Oh, I came across this one myself. Uh, the story of a rugby Tongan fan is being turned into a film. I believe that's in New Zealand. Is that right, Carl? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Red, White and Brass uh, is the title of the film, uh, and it centres around a diehard Tongan rugby fan uh, who missed out on tickets uh, to the Tonga versus France game at the World Cup back in Wellington in 2011. Uh, so uh, he essentially promised to deliver a band for the pre-match entertainment. Is that a way to get around? Yeah. Yeah, not having a ticket, I'll give you a band instead. As a way to get in. However, that band did not exist, and uh, <laughs> and he was forced to create one uh, just weeks weeks out from the match, and uh, and looks like he managed to do that successfully, hence why they're making a film out of it. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I w- we would love to hear. Do you know if the band still exists? I, I don't know much about it, to be honest. I'd be really interested to see uh, the film. The, the lead actor, John Paul uh, Folaki, he spoke uh, about the film uh, on Sunday morning, a morning breakfast show in New Zealand. Uh, we do know it premieres on, on March 21, uh, very much a feel-good sort of happy kind of story. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to uh, yeah give it a watch. Yeah, indeed. And if you can't get tickets to that film, I imagine you can start your own brass band and then maybe they'll, they'll com- that'll convince them to give you a <laughs> ticket and get get into the movie to I've watch it. I've never possessed much uh, musical talent, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yes, we'll see We'll see what this uh, Tongman rugby fan, how he managed to pull it all together. Um, yeah, very interesting story there. Red, White and Brass is the name of that movie. And Kyle Evans is the name of our reporter. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Bronco. Pacific Beat. Final plans are underway in Japan to release 1.3 million tonnes of treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. That's about 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools worth. The government and nuclear plants operator Tokyo Electric Power Company says the water is safe, but not everyone is convinced, with China, South Korea and many Pacific leaders opposing the release. So what does the science say? To find out, joining us now is Dr. Robert Richmond, a marine conservation biologist from the University of Hawaii, who's actually one of the independent experts advising the Pacific Forum Secretariat. Good morning to you, Bob. Uh, Good morning to you. And uh, joining Bob this morning is Nigel Marks. He's the Associate Professor of Physics at Curtin University. Morning to you as well, Nigel. Thanks for having me on. Um, So, Bob, let me start with you. You are uh, advising that Pacific um, Islands Forum there. Now, Japan says this water is safe. Why do you think it isn't? Um, Well, let me uh, give the context that I and the other four members of the um, quote-unquote expert panel that was engaged by the Pacific Island Forum were asked to be able to review the existing data, um, have meetings both with uh, Pacific Island leaders as well as with representatives from Japan, uh, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, their Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and TEPCO, to review the plan and the data that are supporting it. And we didn't come in with a position either way, and our position is still, let's look and see what the data uh, say, not what we say. And at this point, we are not convinced that this is a safe plan, that uh, the data that have been presented um, have raised a number of issues with us. Um, I will say that um, three of us were in Japan a few weeks ago as part of the uh, Pacific Island Forum mission to Japan. And I thought it was a fruitful meeting where uh, we were able to meet with a number of the scientists as well as the policymakers to go over things. Um, they clearly addressed a number of the questions and concerns we had. Uh, other concerns we had were confirmed as being serious concerns, and a few new ones popped up. Um, but based on the statements of uh, safety and based on the data that we were presented, um, we do not see that we can make that recommendation at this point. Uh, to the Pacific Island leaders, nor to uh, anyone else who is interested. Mm. Um, Bob, that's that's um, your thoughts, but I want to turn to you now, Nigel. You've called this PIF, the Pacific Islands Forum expert panel, that Bob's on, as unfairly critical of this ocean discharge. You, in fact, do say it is a safe plan. Um, what gives you that confidence? So I would make that assessment based mainly on uh, the amount of radioactivity that's in the water. So I have read the, the report very closely and I, I've watched the YouTube presentation that Bob and his colleagues gave. And my feeling is that the, the language that's used uh, gives the wrong impression of the, uh, the degree of technical expertise that the Japanese authorities have. 
And the other thing that the main thing that really con- concerned me was that there wasn't much mention of uh, of what this radioactivity is like compared to the natural environment. So the the main thing that people have been talking about there are other things, but the main thing is tritium. Uh, and there is a relatively small amount of tritium at Fukushima in a very large volume of water. Most of the water is just regular water. And there's a, the, the amount of tritium that's there is very small compared to the uh, much larger amount, which is already in the ocean. And so there's other reasons, but that's one of the main headline reasons for why I'm not concerned. Mm, okay. So, Bob, how do you respond to that? Because you did say there are serious concerns, um, and I imagine some of those concerns is the level of tritium, this radioactive isotope that is in this waste port water going into the Pacific. That's the plan, at least. What are your concerns there? Why do you have serious concerns about this discharge? Okay. Well, certainly, let me clarify one of the first comments that was made of tritium being one of our biggest concerns. Actually, tritium is not the biggest concern. There are over 60 different radionuclides, many of which are of more of a concern than tritium. Uh, tritium is hydrogen, and so hydrogen is ubiquitous. And um, yes, there is tritium in background uh, in the ocean as well. But a couple of points that I think are most important for your listeners. One is that um, this is not a laboratory-based experiment we're discussing here. So when we talk about dilution being the solution to pollution, which is basically what they're saying here, as soon as you put anything into the ocean like these radionuclides, uh, the biology goes right against the idea of dilution, meaning that they can take these uh, radionuclides up, they can accumulate them, they can pass them through various trophic levels where they can be accumulated and magnified, and they can eventually get into people. And so even tritium, which is considered to be a, a low-level beta emitter, Tritium occurs in various forms, and one of the things that I'm sure we're all aware of is called uh, organically bound tritium. Um, it has different forms, both soluble and insoluble. It can be what's called escapable and non-escapable. But of greatest relevance is that it can be picked up, it can be transferred, it can be accumulated. And there's a big difference between people being exposed to tritium externally, where the skin generally can stop beta emitters. But once it gets inside, it's a much different story. If someone eats uh, an organism that has radionuclides in it, uh, the cells inside do not have the protection of skin. And the subtleties now that there's more and more new data coming up on the two kinds of health effects that radionuclides have, um, what we call deterministic, which are the ones that you can immediately see, and then the stochastic, which are the cancers, which take a while to show up and they're a little bit harder to deal with modeling. But tritium is not our biggest concern. It's one. But far more concerning are some of the other 60-plus radionuclides that are present And once again, the idea that when you put things in the ocean, it's not just a chemistry experiment, it's a biology issue. We know that these things can be accumulated. We know that they can be stored in the sediment. We know that they can be trophically transferred. And once people get contaminated uh, materials inside the body, um, they can affect the DNA. Um, There's two kinds of DNA in people's cells and all living cells. The nuclear DNA that passes on genetic information from one generation to the next but the mitochondrial DNA, which is really the power supply for all living organisms. Mm. And it causes um, various kinds of oxidative stress and damage that may not kill an organism or give it cancer, but it can certainly have an effect on the health as well. Um, The other thing I think people don't realize is the plan is to release this water for over 40 years. At the moment, the accumulated water is a little over 1.3 million tons, uh, which they're treating. But one of the red flags that was really raised for us on the radionuclides is what we call the absence of the source terms, meaning what's exactly in the tanks, what's exactly in the water. And uh, any scientist, uh, one of the things we use to determine 
uh, concerns in sampling. It's called a power analysis. How many samples you would need to take to have confidence in the quality of your data? And when I asked, can you just show us your power analysis to show us how you sampled what was in the tanks? So we have a pretty good understanding of what's there, what we should be concerned about. They didn't even do a power analysis. And I have students in my laboratory, undergraduate, graduate, even high school students, that if we're doing a sampling design, this is like one of the first things you do. And so these are things that, again, are raising questions. We haven't decided that, no, this is terrible. But when we ask for data to be able to show us the safety um, we see gaps, we see inadequate data, in some cases inaccurate data, and we're just trying to do our due diligence to ensure that if we give a recommendation to the Pacific Island leaders and to others that this is safe, we need to have the data to stand by that. Mm -hmm. And our unanimous decision on the panel so far is we haven't seen it. We just don't. Mm. Now, Nigel, I know you've got a different reading of the data. I mean, do you believe there's enough there to give you confidence that this water is safe? Absolutely. I, Bob's raised a lot of points there, but <clears throat> from my point of view, many of those things are, are what I would call red herrings of the, the scientific nature. So there was, a, there was a very good study done a couple of years ago um, which shows what would happen if you ate a year's worth of fish, which would be caught within a few k's of the, the wastewater outlet at Fukushima. And if you ate all your fish just from that area, which obviously is impossible because fish sw swim wherever they want, but in that very special case... Um, you eat your fish there for a year and you'll get roughly uh, five micro sieverts worth of radiation now. No one really knows what that means in the general public. So for everyone out there, that's one dental x-ray. So a year's worth of, of Fukushima fish uh, in a fairly unrealistic scenario gives you a, one dental x-ray we use to check our, our cavities. It's absolutely nothing. And in the case of the tritium, the dose is even smaller. It's uh, it amounts to less than uh, a banana. So one little bite of a banana would be equal to the, the tritium dose. So like Bob mentioned some things that he mentioned some science. He mentions it in his, uh, his, document, in his uh, YouTube presentation. I had a look at it last night and it's scientifically true, but it's not relevant to the particular problem at hand. So he talked before about mitochondrial DNA. The study he's talking about involves radiation 100,000 times greater than what's relevant to Fukushima. So it's scientifically true, but just not relevant to this particular problem at hand. Uh, but, I mean, Nigel, if you do have confidence that this is um, quite safe, this water, isn't it better to err on the side of caution? If, if it is so safe, why can't it stay in Japan and not be released into the Pacific? Yeah, they're just running out of space. Like, it's a, there's a, this is a hard problem. Like, they have a, an actual physical problem. Like, they've got this enormous amount of water. They've got tanks everywhere. They need to start getting these tanks out of the way so they can get on with fixing up all the other problems they've got at the complex. Like it's a serious you know, engineering exercise to, to fix this. They can't just keep storing water, uh, and, and I would say essentially for, for no reason. So they've, they've really got to do something with it, and there's really two good options. Uh, one is to evaporate it into the atmosphere, and the other one is to release it into the ocean. And, and when you think that, like if you think of storing, like some people have suggested to store it for 50 or 100 years, like the, Bob said before that tritium wasn't the biggest concern, but hey, look, they've got three main recommendations and two of them talk about tritium. So anyway, that's, I'm just reading the words here of the report. And the idea of storing this mountain of water for, say, 60 years to while you wait for one bite of a banana's worth of tritium to disappear, it's, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. So they, they've got other, other problems. They're not trying to be callous. They're doing it very slowly. Like Bob talked about the 40 years. That's actually a good thing. People can quote scientific numbers and make it sound bad. They're doing it very slowly. 
So there's going to be no effect on the environment. It, it looks bad, I understand that, but it really isn't bad. And they've got a good technology to remove all of the other radioactive nasties. And mm. <laughs> my opinion is they just need to be... They, they're, not, they're not doing it without everyone watching. There's a lot of oversight. Uh, but I really think that the dangers are being massively overstated. Mm. I mean, over to you, Bob. I mean, it sounds like um, there's there's this accusation that there might be uh, some overreaction when it comes to um, these fear around the discharge. I mean, how, how likely is some of those worst case scenarios that you outlined, some of those health um, health problems that we might see from this discharge? How likely do you believe they are, Bob? Well, that's the issue at hand, is that uh, the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence in the work that I do in ecotoxicology. And so we're trying to hold um, the Japanese government and TEPCO to a standard that we think is responsible. And I think that's the issue here, is are um, the decision makers being responsible in the way in which they're addressing it? You know, this isn't the science part as much as the context, but um, the TEPCO leaders were told that they could expect a tsunami wave of up to 15 meters. And that's exactly what happened, and they didn't plan for it. So just on the basis of that, as a scientist looking at not only the data on the radionuclides, which is our main focus, but the context in which data are being analyzed and applied doesn't give me much confidence in what we're seeing in these statements. Um, In terms of red herrings, we see so many of them coming out um, of those that are proponents of this plan, everything from well as below drinking water standards. Nobody's talking about drinking ocean water. What we are talking about are radionuclides that we know can be biologically bound. We know they can be taken up. We know they can get in and they can be broadly distributed. And there's a number of pathways by which these radionuclides can get into seafood and into people as well. And honestly, we're as concerned about the people of Japan as we are about the people of the Pacific and elsewhere. Um, And you also have to keep in mind that this is not just a radionuclide issue for the oceans when you consider all of the other antagonistic and synergistic problems, meaning the oceans are under a great deal of stressors, everything from climate change, ocean acidification, uh, warming temperatures due to climate change, there's eutrophication, there's pollution, things like mercury. Um, If you don't believe that things can be accumulated, We can't eat a lot of tuna from some areas, the larger tuna, because of the mercury burden now. If you look at most health um, uh, publications, they'll indicate a limitation because of the very uptake that occurred with mercury. We're also concerned about that with the radionuclides as well. Um, These are things that concern us. So we have colleagues from Japan uh, that worked at uh, JAMTEC, the Japanese Agency for Marine Environmental Science and Technology, whose research was basically censored. Um, They had to withdraw publications because the government didn't want it to come out. These don't give us a whole lot of confidence and transparency of what's going on. In the end, what we're trying to do is address the main question we were asked by the Pacific Island leaders. Do we believe this is safe for the health of the oceans and for the people who depend on the oceans? And for the Pacific Islands, they completely depend on the oceans for their economy, their ecology, and their cultures. And so we're not going to take a cavalier attitude. We're not going to trivialize it. And to put it again in context, uh, there's a scale from zero to seven for nuclear incidents. There have only been two in Category 7. The first one was Chernobyl. The second one is Fukushima. Uh, Fukushima is about a tenth of what happened at Chernobyl, so it's different. Uh, Chernobyl was atmospheric and terrestrial, but Fukushima is mostly marine. And hence, that's why we're saying apply the precautionary principle. In a world where the ocean is already under a lot of stressors, this is not acting in a vacuum. It's one more. 
getting things like radionuclides into the food chain and into areas where they can accept uh, get into people. And there's a lot of new data coming out on a weekly basis on the effects of radionuclides on cellular activity, signaling proteins, mitochondrial and uh, um, nuclear DNA. And to just say one paper or one study, uh, there are many that are emerging that are raising these deterministic and stochastic concerns that we feel really need to be answered before we can give any a suggestion of clearance. But but as Nigel said before, um, Bob, you know, time is ticking. These these uh, This water is now stored in tanks uh, on the site, in the Fukushima site. I mean, aren't there, aren't there problems having it there long term? Isn't this the best best solution for, for what we have at the moment? Is there any alternatives, really? Yeah, and that's a really good point. Um, one of the things that we've examined is the use of the um, treated contaminated water for making concrete. Concrete is very water intensive in terms of what it requires. And I did visit the Fukushima site when I was in Japan a few uh, weeks ago. And it was striking to me of just how much concrete they are going to need to use on the Fukushima site. They're building up the seawall, which is great to see. Um, They have uh, over a million cubic meters of contaminated soil that need to be contained. Right now they're in black bags they really should be stored within some kind of concrete structure. They have an underground uh, ice barrier to prevent additional groundwater from seeping into the cores that are melting down, which is a good idea, and it should be replaced by concrete as well. If it's true that the Alps-treated water is completely safe, then what's the argument of not using it for using uh, for concrete construction on site that way, it is no longer transboundary nor transgenerational. 40 years, that's our kids, that's their kids, and even further. Why can't this be just done on site? Uh, and again, we agree, it shouldn't be just a matter of telling people no, no, no. We've looked at some of these other alternatives like bioremediation, but the concrete one seems like a very viable one based on the calculations we've seen. And one of our uh, team members who's done the actual calculations indicated that that would use up the water in a period of about five years. Remember, new water is being created every day from the cooling, but five years versus 40, even if you're off a bit here and there, sounds a lot better. Keeping it on site um, takes away the transboundary issue, and then nobody should have a problem with it. Mm. Uh, Nigel, how do you respond to that? Is is concrete perhaps a good compromise? Uh, I very much doubt it. Look, I people can say they've done calculations, but nothing's been published, so I haven't seen any of these things. And uh, these, these are very experienced engineers. They obviously know what they need to do. Uh, and if they were, if that was a genuine option, then I'm sure they would have would have considered it. The other thing is that, like, uh, Bob isn't a concrete engineer, and and neither am I. Like, this is something that a, a hardcore engineer needs to to make a decision on. Like, when you make concrete, you know, you actually evaporate a lot of the water into the air. Maybe you can suppress it. Who knows? Uh, I I severely doubt that that actually is a, a genuine option. So one of the things I'd just like to mention on that, Bob mentions bioremediation. This is the third point of their three kind of headline recommendations. There's no way you can bioremediate uh, all of this water, especially from the, the tritium point of view. So it's just uh, like the main, I, I just feel like there's unrealistic uh, options that are being proposed. They've done a very detailed study. And, and like I said before, the two Obvious options are tritium, a release into the ocean or evaporation. That's how you get rid of the tritium and everything else you just grind away with their water treatment process, which goes by the acronym of ALPS. I'd just really like to return, though, to how this, um, this concept of how much tritium there is in the ocean. Like Tritium is actually produced in the atmosphere every day. Um, we get, or every year, we get somewhere between 150 and 200 grams 
of tritium and it just rains down into the ocean and the ocean's full of about eight and a half kilos of tritium and the authorities are going to release the water very slowly uh, you know way less than a gram of uh, 0.06 of a gram per year it's absolutely nothing compared to what's already there like what much of which has been produced by nature itself so the korean government um did a study recently through their nuclear agency and the tritium levels are so low they wouldn't even be able to measure it. And we all know how how impressive technologies are to measure radioactivity and they, they wouldn't even be able to realise that it had been released. So the idea that it will hurt people and animals, it's just like compared to the, the real risks, that the real threats of the ocean, which Bob listed off, and in fact I've got my very own list. I love the ocean. I was swimming with sea lions yesterday. I don't want to see it destroyed. Don't get me wrong. But the... What's going to be this planned release? It's just just irrelevant compared to what's already there. Mm. Now, it seems like we do have a bit of an impasse between perhaps both of you, but on a grander scale as well when, when it comes to this release of, of this nuclear wastewater from Fukushima. So I wanted to ask, leave it with one question to each of you. I'll start with you, Nigel. What would you need to see to doubt the safety of this water, to have you change the mind? What sort of data, what would you need to see to, to have you change your mind? Sorry, can I restate what? How would I? What would make me? What would make you mind? change your oh, mind and, and doubt the safety of this of this water? Oh, okay. Um, it would be if at the point of when the water was going to release, um, it turned out there was um, far higher concentrations of, uh, of of radioactive elements, probably particularly strontium uh, and cesium. They would be the the two I'd be looking for. So suppose they were, you know. 10,000 or 100,000 times greater than uh, what the reported values are, then I would be concerned. But for the for the current levels that are, are reported, it's just off the chart. It's my, my worry factor is zero. That would be the that's the main thing for me that matters. What is the uh, the, the nucleoid concentration at the point of, of release? And, and Bob, I'll, I'll ask you the same question. You know, this as we've been hearing from Nigel, that there is this for him at least, uh, a high level of confidence that this water has been correctly treated and tested and is safe for the ocean. What would it take for you to feel as confident as Nigel does about this uh, water being uh, discharged into the Pacific? Yeah, it all depends on the data. And again, as I've said, none of us came in with preconceived notions of being opposed to it. We've been going over a year of uh, studies, of meetings, of in-depth surveys of the data that are there looking at what's present, what's not. And we simply don't see the data that are there to be able to make the statement of safety. Um, uh, Nigel mentioned the strontium and the cesium. These are certainly of concern, but there are 58 other radionuclides as well. And these are not happening independently. They're all part of the same water. We know their advanced liquid processing system, the ALPS that he mentioned, um, has had some problems. And when you don't know what's in the tanks initially, you have to wonder what the efficiency is, how many times. We were told that even if they have to pass it through 300 times, they'll do so. Um, it's encouraging to hear that they're going to keep... No, not red herring. It's true. If they have to pass it through a number of uh-huh. times, it's encouraging for them to say that. But their response is we're going to be monitoring uh, the outfall to see if everything is okay. And It's true that monitoring gives you information, but it doesn't protect you for problems or prevent them. It simply tells you when they occur. And that's our concern. When we see the data to show that the ALPS is functioning, that they're removing all the other radionuclides, um, that it's at levels of no concern, that we're not seeing bioaccumulation at levels that can be of concern to 
uh, the health of the ocean and the health of the people end up on the uh, who use the ocean, then we would be okay with it. And in the meantime, if they say it's totally safe, but they don't want to keep it on in Japan or on site through concrete or other ways, that makes you wonder um, if it's not safe for there, why is it safe for the rest of the ocean? All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I know we've um, run out of time, um, but uh, thank you to, for you both. We haven't perhaps come to a solution here, but at least uh, for our listeners, we've um, given them both sides of this very, very controversial uh, topic. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Bob. Uh, that was a controversial and complicated issue, as we just heard there. There is division among scientists over the best way to handle Japan's Fukushima nuclear wastewater. Thanks again to Nigel Marks. He was the Associate Professor of Physics at Curtin University and Dr. Robert Richmond. He's a marine conservation biologist from the University of Hawaii and, as he explained, is part of that extra expert panel that the Pacific Islands Forum has organized to look into this issue of Japan's Fukushima nuclear nuclear wastewater discharge. And we also know that Japan's foreign minister is expected to visit several Pacific nations later this month. He's supposed to be there to, as part of his visit, quell concerns around this wastewater. And we'll have to see, and we'll keep you updated here in Pacific Beat, if if his uh, plans to quell concerns in the Pacific is successful or not. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. In the Pacific trade in beche de mer or sea cucumber, it is highly lucrative. But because of its scarcity, there's heavy restrictions on when the underwater delicacy can be harvested. But sometimes restrictions can be flouted. Australian authorities have seized around 250 kilograms of sea cucumber along with 15 shark fins from an Indonesian fishing vessel intercepted in Australian waters. Matt Baran spoke to Peter Van Solvis from the Australian Fisheries Management Authority. Uh, the vessel was uh, sighted by aerial surveillance coordinated by Maritime Border Command um, early last week and uh, it was then subsequently intercepted by uh, a Royal Australian Navy patrol vessel, HMS Armadale, uh, and apprehended and the vessel and the crew have been brought to Darwin uh, and AFMA is conducting further investigations into the activities of the crew. Uh, on board the boat, we found around about 250 kilograms of tree pang, which is uh, sea cucumber, uh, and 15 shark fins. So they certainly had uh, catch on board uh, and they're equipped for fishing, hence the uh, action to bring them to port for further investigation. So the boat and the crew now in Darwin... What happens next? Okay, the boat is currently uh, at a quarantine marker and we'll be looking at um, disposal of that vessel and that will entail uh, destruction because um, these vessels are wooden-hulled. They uh, don't meet Australian survey standards so they can't be resold or anything. So it's been seized and will be um, dealt with through a disposal process. Uh, We'll... uh, continue with our investigations in terms of the activities of the crew and then prepare a brief of evidence for the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions or the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions Office to consider the laying of charges against um, the crew. And how severe could those charges potentially be? Uh, the, the maximum fines for these types of um, activities are, are 
are quite substantial, but um, because of the uh, situation with these crew members and so forth, the sort of average fines that we do get, you know, could, can range between you know a thousand dollars each up to you know ten thousand dollars each. Um, but the uh, maximum fines are uh, much higher than that. But the main deterrent I must stress is the uh, seizure and destruction of their vessel. That is a big one for them yeah. in terms of losing losing their, their boat. And uh, that is uh, the main deterrent in uh, these matters. Because would these fishermen even have the capacity to pay a $10,000 fine? Uh, that That is an issue. Yeah, exactly right. And... Um, hence the uh, the fines are levelled at what the court thinks is appropriate for the circumstances, you know, of the of the particular fishers. Now, during the pandemic, there was a real spike in illegal fishing vessels entering Australian waters. What would be your summary of the current situation, Peter? Uh, just as a bit of history, um, illegal or the incidence of illegal foreign fishing in Australian waters peaked out in the mid two thousands uh, when we were apprehending hundreds of boats per year. And peaked out at you know, 648 interceptions in the financial year 2005-2006. Then from about 2008-2009 financial year for the decade up to the uh, 2020s, uh, we were averaging between 15 and 25 interceptions per year. Uh, but numbers uh, increased in 20. 2021 financial year to 85 interceptions um, and then the following year 337 interceptions but for this financial year from the 1st of July um, we're down to 85 so there was a upsurge uh, a maxing out of numbers last financial year and it looks like there's been a decline this financial year and what can you put that down to do you think um, well, it's a multifaceted approach that we uh, undertake or apply in these to this particular issue, uh, and that involves on the water enforcement involving the seizure of catch um, equipment vessels. Also, as we're seeing with this particular case, prosecution of offenders. But not only that, but also other lines of effort directed towards tackling the problem at its source in Indonesia. And uh, we have a very good and effective working relationship with our counterpart agencies in Indonesia in terms of uh, conducting collaborative patrols out there on the water. Uh, and we also um, gain assistance by the authorities in Indonesia to arrange uh, for educational programs to be conducted in the ports where these vessels come from to explain where the boundaries are hand out chartlets and so forth and explain to them what the ramifications are if they get caught. That was a Peter Venzasolovis, the General Manager of the Fisheries Operations Branch with the Australian Fisheries Management Authority. And with that, we come to the end of Pacific Beat for another Tuesday morning. Thank you for your company this morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. I'll be back with you tomorrow at the same time, same place. Or if you want to tune in to more Pacific news, we've got our afternoon show coming up today. Thank you so much. Thank you.